The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone. Got a couple other books up here um, that I'll draw from in my comments tonight, but uh, feel free to check them out. There's sort of, you know, two of our uh, senior teachers in this Western lineage of Theravada Buddhism, often called Insight Meditation, here in the West or Vipassana Meditation. And one is by Joseph Goldstein called One Dharma, a book he wrote a, a while back. And this is his sort of, I think, expression of faith. And, you know, being Joseph, it it has sort of more of a scholarly feel to it in the sense of integrating the different Buddhist Buddhist tradition and really trying to um, distill the uh, essence of what the Buddha was teaching, this, you know, teaching of non-grasping. And then Sharon is much more, her book on faith, Trust in Your Own Deepest Experience, Sharon Salzberg. It's much more autobiographical <laughs> and just the, her own adventure and, uh, and just a very difficult upbringing, early life experience and really having to find this seed of faith early on in her life. I'll share a few stories from that book. But you may want to, you know, in the months and years ahead, you might want to read those books. They're especially if you feel a real connection with this, I don't know what you call it, this movement we're all part of here in the West. It's kind of, you know, it's a new thing, this rebirthing of the Buddhist teachings here in the West. I mean, the people have been practicing for centuries, but every time the Buddha Dharma, these teachings from this teacher, the Buddha, every time they show up in a new culture, there's sort of a reformation or a, Yeah, it's kind of a new flowering of these teachings here in the West. And we're part of that. And it's really important because so central to how the Buddha taught is this sense of self-reliance or independence. But not too soon. I mean, because... I could be, you know, arrogantly think I'm independent in my delusion, whatever that might be. So we need to learn a thing or two and basically get to the point where our own experience is our teacher. But it's not necessarily going to be the case right in the beginning because we don't even know how to, in a sense, use the mind to see the mind use the sensitivity of the mind to become sensitive to what's going on internally. Because we have probably genetic, for genetic reasons through evolution, we have this external orientation because just so happens that supports survival, right? So when you look at our senses, the seeing, the hearing, the you know, even the thinking is mostly oriented toward what is being seen, what is being heard, what's being smelled, what touches are arising in our experience. 
So we're turning that sensitivity back in on itself. So the mind is learning that it can be sensitive. And that what motivates that is this seed of faith that what turns out to be most relevant in terms of what the heart really seeks, peace, freedom, freedom from being bound up, freedom from being tight, freedom from being afraid, freedom from being needy, greedy, wanting. It just so happens that the way out of what the heart seeks to be free from has everything to do with what's going on in the mind and the heart itself and less to do with what's going on around us. It's interesting, you know, to take these phrases that Gail, Gail Iverson, most of you probably know her. I don't know if people realize, uh, some of you know about the Twin Cities Vipassana Collective. used to be called the Twin Cities Vipassana Cooperative, I think. But anyway, Gail was one of the founders back, I think, in 1987 of that group, that sister organization, the Common Ground. So she's been around with doing her practice for a long time. And, uh, you know, when we look at these phrases, I have faith that the seed of liberation, the seeds of liberation are present in all living beings. And it's just, it's nice, just let's put it on the table like, do I have that confidence? Or do I, am I pretty arrogantly sure that there are some people in this room <laughs> you know, that don't have the seeds of liberation in you? Sorry. Just to kind of look at the mind, like what kind of story... I mean, it's okay to know that we don't know. I don't know. But just to... Or do I, you know, the next phrase is, therefore I have faith that the seeds of liberation are present within me. One of the reasons in, um, you know, Buddhist cultures, one of the reasons they make such a big deal out of this person, the Buddha, because symbolic, symbolically this person represents that freedom is possible. It's a symbol that freedom is possible. One of the images used at the time of the Buddha is the, the mother cow crossing the river, you know, because it's bigger. And then it gets across, it can't carry the calves across, right? It doesn't have arms, you know. But it can go across and it can stand there on the other bank. And wh- what's that word for the mother? Is it lowing? Is it lowing? Yeah, right? The mother cow lows or <laughs> makes that moan. Basically, saying to the calves, you can do it, or you've got to do it. (laughs) There's no other way. You've got to cross that stream or that river. And I'll, you know, I'll keep the noise up as a beacon, you know, that there's a way. You can do it. You have to do it. And the thing, and I mentioned this last week, Faith, that inspirational movement in our heart, in our mind, about what's possible. Without that, nothing happens. We're basically in the loop of samsara. 
in the loop of always doing what we've always done, always getting what we've always gotten. And it doesn't take too much reflection to realize how that loop pretty much defines not our whole life, but maybe a majority of our days. Right? We're just doing what we've done before, relating in ways like relating to traffic in ways we've related to traffic before, relating to our partners in the ways that we've related to our partners before, relating to politics in the way we've related to politics before, relating to food in ways we've related to food before, relating to money in ways we've related to money before, and then getting what we've always gotten by relating to those things in the way we relate to them. Doing the same thing, getting the same results. And faith, that confidence or faith, you know, initial faith, sometimes called borrowed faith or inspired faith, it's like that's just hearing the story of the Buddha or having the mother cow, you know, a good friend who goes on a retreat or a good friend who gets their act together and starts practicing more regularly or takes the time to study and reflect on what they've read and make some changes in their life based on what they've studied and reflected on. And and we see like in another person, a friend or a teacher or even a historic person that we don't know personally, we see it kind of awakens in our own heart the sense of what might be possible. We don't know for sure if it's possible, but it's just the sense of possibility. right? There's some energy to want to check it out. Maybe I'm not just destined to always do what I've always done and always get the same results. Maybe there's more to life than just getting by, just surviving to the end of the work week or surviving to retirement or getting through the next difficult thing as if that's some accomplishment, you know, only to have another difficult thing to get to the end of, and then another thing. And so it's interesting, like I was trying to suggest in the guided meditation, to see if we have some intuition, enough intuition, enough confidence that peace, release, whatever it is that the heart aspires to or is drawn to, whether there's enough confidence to directly attune to it. Something, I think it's in uh, this book by Joseph Goldstein, One Dharma, The Emerging Western Buddhism. Uh, Dalai Lama did uh, the preface for that book. Um, I think it's in that book he get, tells a story about his first teacher, one of his first teachers, Manindaji, this uh, Indian man who was a civil servant in Burma for a number of years and had the good fortune to study with Mahasi Sayada, this very well-known Burmese Buddhist monk and teacher, and then eventually returned to uh, India where Joseph met him in Bodh Gaya the place of the Buddha's awakening. Supposedly the Bodhi tree there in Bodh Gaya is the offspring of previous trees all the way back to the tree the Buddha sat under way back when. 
And uh, Menindaji would say something to Joseph about noticing the difficulty of escaping the gravitational field of the world of sense pleasures. Right? And this is exactly what we feel. I mean, you may not think about it in, with these words, but when we're sitting, especially at the beginning of the sit, the swirl we feel, you know, like just dealing with the discomfort in the body and dealing with the memories of the day and other movements, it's all about sense experience and somehow valuing sense experience. Thoughts of the future, thoughts of the past, thoughts of the present, thoughts about the body, thoughts about hopes and dreams. One way or another, thoughts about other people, this is the world of sense experience. The mind obsessing. And it's basically the mind acting out its faith that the resolution of my tightness, the resolution of feeling bound up, has something to do with sense experience. If only I could be sitting in a hot bath. But I I still, because for maybe four years, when I was just getting started with my practice, I lived in this old Victorian home in Berkeley, California, with a couple other people who were also really interested in meditation. And uh, every night we'd sit, and then they had this beautiful redwood hot tub Underneath, it wasn't bamboo, but it was something that looked like bamboo, maybe some kind of cane that grew in the Berkeley area. And we'd sit in the hot tub. You know, it it actually gets pretty cold in Berkeley. Um, But none of the houses, at least back then, had central heating. You know, there's like, (laughs) it's like our houses are so much warmer than the houses, at least the houses I lived in, (laughs) in the Bay Area, in San Francisco Bay Area. So we'd sit in the hot tub, and it was so nice. So I have this idea, like, I mean, I forget that I had a young body then, but I had this idea that if I have a hot, had a hot, hot tub outside, you know, especially a redwood hot tub, that I could just take the cover off, and every night before going to bed, I'd just sit there, right, in a very private way, looking at the night sky, that all my bodily problems would disappear. Right, that that would take care of everything. We have, this is like, what do we have faith in? Oh, if I had that, or if I had that proverbial cabin in the perfect, you know, North Woods, or if I had this relationship, or if I had this job, or this amount of money, or this amount of vacation, or this kind of samadhi in my city meditation practice, or so this is all expressing our faith in sensuality. So we would say sensuality is the God that we worship. And that's just the truth. I mean, that, that's really the way it is. Most of the day, we're devotees of sensuality. Now, sensuality isn't bad. It's just limited, right? So don't. it's not like we're... You know, the sensuality we're attracted to is about harming other people, necessarily. It could be relatively wholesome sensuality, like wanting to save the world. You know, wanting to tell a partner how she or he can be a better person. (laughs) (laughs) 
or our friends or whatever it might be. But it's, the Buddha would basically say, you know, when you look at that activity, you'll notice, it may be subtle, but you'll notice it's tense in the beginning, it's tense in the middle, it's tense in the end. It's inherently flawed. As exciting as the thoughts of sensuality might be, if we're really honest and willing to take a closer look with more stable awareness, we'll see that even the exciting, even the juicy, even the enlivening thoughts about becoming somebody, fixing my life, doing something, having a great uh, adventure in Asia, and you know, really going where Buddhism is real, you know, these sort of fantasies we can have of having a great experience, we'll see that there's tension in the beginning, tension in the middle, tension in the end. Because the attachment, the identification contaminates all of sensuality. Right? As long as the mind is looking to sensuality to solve the problem the self has, then there's gonna, it's going to be fundamentally flawed. And so that's so much of developing faith is seeing what's not the way, seeing that that's not the way. That's the initial faith that we gain, that sensuality is not the way. Whatever involves sense experience is not the way. So that sort of begs an important question. Well, if it has nothing to do with sense experience, I'm screwed. (laughs) And in a way, that's right. It's like, because the, the direction the Buddha points is not a rejection of sensuality, but a non-attachment to sensuality, right? So it's a radical shift in how the mind relates to sensuality. And this is, it sounds sort of philosophical saying it the way I just said it, that this is something directly, immediately approachable in any sit and really in any moment of our life where we're basically looking at those two gravitational poles. So to finish this teaching from Menindadri, notice the difficulty of escaping the gravitational field of this world of sense pleasures. Instead, right, we're practicing being drawn into the gravitational field of the Dharma, of the Dhamma. So, and this is Joseph writing, glimpse the zero center of selflessness, emptiness. Let this be our gravity. So that's that feeling, the direct, immediate flavor, feeling, sense of non-attachment. Do we know the internal experience, flavor of the heart not grasping, the heart not needing to become somebody, right? Well, the Buddha, our teacher, tells us, yeah, we get these pointing out instructions which are so important and everything about, you know, the sort of more simple, deeper tradition is, I mean, the symbols themselves, it's all about just pointing out instructions, basically saying, hey, it's about peace. 
It's about peace. It's about peace, <laughs> right? It's about peace. So that's a, that's a relevant pointing out instruction. You know, when we're sitting and we're just observing, we've got enough stability of present moment awareness, right? Coming back, some continuity of present moment awareness. And with that, we, we can see like the activity of the mind in particular and start to correlate activity in mind that's clearly not about, not in the direction of peace. Like even something seemingly innocent, what am I going to do on Tuesday? And we just feel the heart getting a little bound up and deciding like what's in the fridge for lunch on Tuesday? You know, even that connection, that engagement with sensuality, thinking thoughts about sense experience, there's some tension. That's and then wisdom in the mind will just see things as they are and realize, honey, that's clearly not in the direction of peace. How do I know that? Because there's this crunch in the heart right now associated with those thoughts about What's in the fridge for lunch? Maybe I should go to the co-op and pick up a few things. Oh yeah, that with a lot of melted cheese and just the right sauce would be really good. <laughs> you know, there's a on the surface it's juicy, and maybe even eating it's juicy, but right underneath the surface, being a somebody dependent on that thought. And what that thought represents to the mind, that's dukkha. That crunches dukkha. And wisdom will see that's not the way. That's not peaceful in the beginning, peaceful in the middle, peaceful in the end. That's tight in the beginning, tight in the middle, and tight in the end. Everything about it is tight. And it doesn't mean that that particular sandwich won't taste good. It might be quite pleasurable. It might actually feel good in the body too. It might be really healthy for the body. But the mind's dependence on it, attachment to it, is the cause for suffering. Suffering in the beginning, middle, and end. And so when we're sitting, we need faith to keep the practice active. right? Faith that there is peace, that the heart does seek something beyond these circles, these cycles of suffering. Always being hungry, always needing something to feel good, always needing to become somebody or get rid of something or get somewhere. Buddhism, you know, in terms of people showing up at a place like Kamgan, we come here as just, it's just looking for another sense experience, like being free from my stress. That's a sense experience. So the peace, now we don't get it right from the beginning, but the peace we're after is a peace that doesn't require anything. It doesn't, isn't dependent on anything. In Buddhism we say it's an unconditioned peace. Sharon has some <laughs> teachings from the beginning of her book that 
uh, I thought would be fun to share. She, uh, <laughs> she had a difficult upbringing, and one of the things, uh, she was raised by her grandparents, I think, and uh, they couldn't afford a color TV. I don't know, those of you who are my age or older remember this well, the people who got the color TVs early. I forget when we got our first one, but it seemed to be way behind other people getting the first color TV. But anyway, Sharon's grandmother and grandfather couldn't afford one, so I didn't know about these things, but there was this tinted something other you could put over your black and white TV that kind of created a semblance of color, but in no way related to the different objects on the screen. And Sharon just mentioned in this very early in her book, I wanted to rip off that bizarre front and plead for the real thing. Instead, I silently tolerated the charade, not betraying my desire. I didn't care about anything, or so I hoped it seemed. I came to know very well the protection of distance of a narrowed, compressed world. Though it was my own act of pulling back, I felt forsaken. I told myself a story that there was no way out of the world that turned me in upon myself, right? And some of us, you know, we have our own version of somehow sensing the truth of samsara, always doing the same thing, always getting the same result. I mean, I had my own little versions of the same thing. Uh, Some of you have heard me tell this story, but I don't remember the exact year, but probably age six or seven, and really starting to get disgusted with Christmas. Seeing that what my parents, uh, or Santa Claus, I think I knew at the time, hopefully this isn't news to anybody. (laughs) 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 But seeing that, (laughs) that they could never match my desire. So even though, like, and it wasn't like we were impoverished or anything in my parents, you know, but it was like it never matched my desire. And I, at some point, I was reflective of uh, not enough as a young kid to know on Christmas Eve or the days leading up to Christmas Eve that although I'd be happy to get what I got, it would be a disappointment. And, and I felt like, what a setup that is. The whole thing is a setup, this disappointment. And maybe some of you felt the same way, I mean, in your own particular way, that how life isn't, can never live up. Like, when is wanting, when has wanting ever been completely extinguished? Never. Never. There's always more. I mean, there's moments, you know, there's like a little <laughs> moment when sated, but it's, it's a pretty ephemeral moment. So she goes after telling this story about the TV, she mentions a Charlie Brown Peanuts cartoon. Some of you will remember this. Lucy is in her little booth where she, I don't know if she was pretending to be a psychiatrist or what, doctor is in, right? And uh, Charlie Brown shows up. You know what your problem is, Charlie Brown? The problem with you is that you're you. (laughs) And of course, Charlie Brown is crushed. And he says, well, what in the world can I do about that? And the last frame is Lucy saying, I don't pretend to be able to give advice. 
I merely point out the problem. <laughs> and that's kind of the, the setup that we find ourselves in. You know, when we start to see, because uh, like I said, the initial faith is really getting a sense of what's not the way. What's not the way. And it's a real uh, profound change to begin to see that there is a way. And it's a leap of faith. And initially, it's not so much our own experience. It's often through inspirational stories. We hear the story of the Buddha. I couldn't remember if I shared, did I share the story of Anathapindaka in the first week? The, so I must have done it in another group, um, but not the Buddhist studies group. But anyway, Anathapindaka, many of you probably know, was a, one of the well-known lay practitioners at the time of the Buddha, is known for being a great benefactor for the nuns and monks in the Buddha at the time of the Buddha. And uh, famous for purchasing Jutta's Grove from, I think, the prince at the time and had to spend a lot of money to get that for the monks and nuns, this beautiful garden where they could uh, practice. And this is the story where he first heard about it. He was a, well, a wealthy merchant, a very generous, took care of his name means he you know, fed the poor, basically. He was a very generous person even before meeting the Buddha. And he came to his in-law's house. He was a merchant, so he was traveling to this other town where his wife was from. And normally they treat him as a sort of a big shot because he was sort of a big shot. But they were all sort of busy, busy, busy and didn't really take much notice of him. And he asked, like, what's going on? And they said, well, we're going to feed the Buddha tomorrow. And that word sort of sparked the little seed of faith, right? Because in the tradition, you know, it's hard for us to get a sense, but because we're maybe a little bit more cynical. But, you know, for people that had a real tradition of asceticism and people seeking, being spiritual aspirants, being spiritual seekers, so the idea that there was somebody who was free, you know, had a life, had a body, but was untroubled, unburdened by human existence. Happy, free, loving, kind, wise, radiant. Right? So, you know, if we were brought up that there are those people around, people who are really beautiful in the deepest sense, inspiring in the deepest sense, and you hadn't run into one of those people, and then they say, yeah, and this person's coming for lunch tomorrow or for brunch tomorrow, right? Because the nuns and monks would finish eating by noon. And really, like, uh, he couldn't get it out of his mind. Maybe he had some deep seeds about this possibility. Right? So this is the inspired faith. He's excited. This possibility, like, oh, oh, maybe there's something more to do than just being a good guy and taking care of my family and feeding the people who have less than I have. Maybe there's something beyond this to do with this life. And he couldn't sleep very well. And even before the sun came up, he went out where the people, where the monastics were practicing, always on the outside of town in the woods. So, of course, it's 
If you've ever been out, you know, with no street lights, it's dark. So it's kind of, you know, making his way. And he finds the Buddha and he's sort of for a, a loss for words. And he, he couldn't think of anything to say. And he, so he just said something like superficial. I hope you're doing well or something like that. And the Buddha uttered these words. So I didn't read this on the free week one. I did? Oh. oh, on retreat. Maybe that's what it was. The nine-day retreat, I read it. And this is Andy Olensky's translation. Yeah, so the Anatta Pindaka says, I hope all is well with you, sir. <laughs> so, you know, if you met somebody that everybody was abuzz as being somebody totally at peace, wise, kind, what would we say? <laughs> I hope all is well with you, sir. And the Buddha gave this beautiful answer. So this, like, it's interesting that this willingness to go out and see him, like he didn't wait for the Buddha and the nuns and monks to come for the meal, right? He went, it's like he couldn't stop himself. So just acting on that inspired faith, I'm going to go directly, right? I'm going to hear what this person has to say. I'm going to tune in. So this is a little bit, this is not so different than those of us during the guided meditation. We went to see the Buddha too. It just wasn't a person. It was the peace or the release or whatever, whatever we, in moments at least, were attuning to in our own heart and mind. Right? We went through the thicket and the dark. We didn't really know what we were looking for, but we had some intuition. This is sort of acting on the inspired faith and checking it out, verifying it, right? Looking for it. And then, uh, you know, this is what Anatta Pindaka heard. This is the Buddha's response to his statement. I hope all is well with you, sir. Indeed, the sage who is fully quenched rests at ease in every way. No sense desire adheres to him whose fires have been cooled, deprived of of fuel. All attachments have been severed. The heart's been led away from pain. Tranquil, he rests with utmost ease. The mind has found its way to peace. That's his answer to the question. I hope all is well with you, sir. (laughs) And... Now, at that moment, Anattapindaka had the third kind of faith, realized faith, right? Because he had inspired faith when his in-laws, everyone in the house was all abuzz, excited about this idea of, you know, really beautiful, wise, kind person. Somebody who had done what human beings can do is coming to lunch, and spark this sort of sense in Anathapindaka. And then he did something about it, right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go there, right? Just like we do in our sits. We have to act on the faith, the confidence, that there's a peace that doesn't depend on my life or my mind or my body being different than what it is right now. Because if we believe that it needs, we need different circumstances, we're always going to put it off later when I get my act together. 
later when I start behaving, later when I get up early, later when I figure out what Buddhism is about, later when I've got good samadhi, later when I find a good teacher. I mean, we just keep postponing it. So real faith means we're looking for something that's true here and now because that's what the heart deeply intuits. That whatever our release, whatever the release of the heart is, it's already here and now. It doesn't depend on things being different than they are. And so when Anatta Pindika acted on his inspired faith to verify it, then he had a realization, what in the tradition is sometimes called stream entry. Right there, of course, he had the advantage of attuning to the Buddha's freedom, right? The Buddha's words and the mind of the Buddha speaking from that place of non-attachment, expressing sort of that direct experience of not being afraid, not being greedy, not being confused, not being agitated. We can imagine it's a little easier, right, to sympathetically get what the, bo- what the words are pointing to. For us, it's just a really nice verse that we heard, you know, a little poem. But to be in the presence of someone like that, some t- I've had the opportunity of being around, maybe you have too, people that seem, at least in those moments, in some moments being around them, that they're really coming from a deep place of peace or release. And it's easier to attune to where these teachings, these practices are pointing the mind, pointing the heart. Of course, where the pointing is not out there in the future. They're always pointing to what's here and now. But like I think I mentioned from St. Augustine, where he says, make me chaste, Lord, please make me chaste, but not yet. (laughs) Or something like that. (laughs) Later. (laughs) So this, uh, you know, not the Pindaka, this story is is a real inspiration for us of taking advantage of those moments when we feel inspired and doing something about it. It's really important when we are inspired about what's possible that we act on it, that we look for it here and now, because it kind of creates the groove of trusting that intuition. If we practice postponement, then we get good at that, at deflecting that deeper intuition. It's the same with more mundane but still beautiful expressions of happiness, like being generous being kind, being patient. You know, when we're inspired to be generous, it's really good to act on it. Or when we're inspired to be patient or inspired to be interested, to learn, or to inspired to be present, to always act on these, these movements of the heart, these inspired movements of the heart where 
something is arising that we trust, then to act on it, to act to verify it, and then there will be fruit to that action. If we don't act, then we're stuck in the cycles of samsara, always doing what we've always done, always getting what we've always gotten. Because we're creatures of habit, that's the only thing that spiritual life, spiritual practice is designed to overcome is to break free of that gravitational pull. Because our circles, our cycles of samsara, it's the mind orbiting sensuality, sense experience, sense desire, seeing that as the way to be happy. And that nothing is beyond that, the happiness that nice sense experience can provide. And like the Buddha says, if it wasn't confusing, we wouldn't have a problem with sensuality. It is confusing because there is actual gratification in sense experience. It's pleasant, some of it, in the same way that some of it's very unpleasant. So it's compelling. The world of sensuality is very compelling. The pain and pleasure of sensuality is very compelling to stay orbiting in that. So we need to take advantages of when something breaks through the superficiality and the distractedness of our minds and we feel somewhat inspired. We bump into somebody who's on fire with the practice and has gained some real benefit, right? Or we read a book that moves us. For me, I mean, this is next week when we talk about this movement. Last week in the small groups, we talked about inspired faith. Now next week, one possibility in our our small groups is to track inspired, acting on the inspiration, and having some realization. And don't make realization sort of otherworldly. Just like the mind seeing, experiencing something that it's it's like uh, if we were, you know, before anybody else, if we were to take a balloon and go all the way around the earth, it wouldn't matter if everybody else in our community thought the world was flat. You know, having gone one direction continuously and ending up in the same place, we'd have verified something, right? So our confidence that whatever it is, it's not flat, right? That would be unshakable from our direct experience. And this is the same thing, like when we act on our inspirations and we learn something, we have insight. That's why as Theravada Buddhism, this path of the elders, that's what Theravada means, came to the West and we call it insight meditation or vipassana meditation, it's because, you know, whoever started this habit of calling it vipassana or insight meditation, just highlighting that this act of inspiration, verification, insight. And we become, we take a little step towards becoming more independent, more self-reliant in the spiritual path. Because we're starting to see that the teacher is here. Like uh, there's a famous character from Tibetan Buddhism, Milarepa, is a great line <coughs> where he says,
What does he say? <laughs> Some of you know, while I'm looking for this, I'll tell you this other story about him. Before he died, he was going to pass on his instructions to his the sort of next in line. And he said, it's time now for the secret teachings. So he pulled the student aside. He pulled down his pants or lifted up his robes, bent over and showed him the callus on his buttocks. <laughs> Sitting. So anyway, this is a, that's, just, that's just an aside. And you can definitely take that teaching in a way that doesn't help, <laughs> just so you know. <laughs> As uh, I think it was Ajahn Chah says, chickens can really sit still too. <laughs> so this is the point that I wanted to make. Milarepa, I attain all my knowledge through observing the mind within. Thus, all my thoughts become the teachings of the Dharma. An apparent phenomena or all the books one needs, right? That arises with insight, right? We get drawn in. Every little insight, more than anything else, the mind realizes that the path to what the heart really seeks, the unconditional, unshakable release, and the arising of wisdom and compassion that that path is about the mind understanding the mind. Right? The mind waking up to the mind itself. Seeing what's here to be seen. And any moment, any particular circumstance will do. We don't need particular conditions or circumstances for the mind to see what it needs to see. Which is why the teachers that we follow teach the continuity of mindful awareness. When you ask people who've been practicing for a while where they've had insight, it's not always when they're doing their sitting meditation. Often, the insights come just in ordinary moments when the mind is in balance and mindfulness is there and the mind sees something about the nature of the mind sees its impersonal nature, sees its limited nature, not worthy, not capable of being grasped, sees its ephemeral changing nature. And the world opens up from that understanding, those little glimpses. Everything begins to change. It becomes harder and harder to be a neurotic human being. We we do our best to continue on the old patterns, but the you know, the old rageful patterns, the old lustful patterns, the old distracted, denying patterns, just don't, it's like a pair of clothes that don't seem to fit anymore. I mean, we still put them on, we walk around with them, we act it out, but it just doesn't make as much sense. I noticed today eating corn on the cob, you know, it's like, I'm sure you have your own version of food that was a big deal when you were a kid, right? And so, for me, corn on the cob, being raised by two farmers, my mom and dad, you know, and it's like getting corn, fresh corn, you know, and putting a lot of butter and pepper and salt on it. And then, you know, you kind of eat it like a maniac because <laughs> it's too hot. I mean, you know how it goes. <laughs> and there was also awareness there, too. 
right? There's the eating of the corn a little too fast, a little too greedily, and the awareness, right? Like, oh yeah, this is how it is. That there's the sort of lustful monster thinking that this leads to somewhere, and then there was the wisdom that saw it and knew that, yeah, basically, yeah, it isn't even worth judging myself, right? So it's sort of a cool, yeah, here we go again, and I don't need to be for it, and I don't need to be against it, right? And sure enough, you know, it was over very quickly. <laughs> Two years. Did I finish that quote? Yeah, I think I did finish that quote. Good. So we have about 10 minutes left. I have a lot more I could say, but um, maybe I'll, I'll see if there's a couple comments or questions. And uh, like I said, next week, just to kind of give you a little bit more reflection, and I sent an article out today in the email list, but uh, in terms of studying your own mind, just being on the lookout for inspirations in a talk, in reading, in observing somebody or observing wisdom, freedom in your own life, in your own heart, feeling the energy of inspiration, and then acting on it. Like for us as Buddhists, students of the Buddha, generally the acting on inspiration means that we're taking the energy that comes with the inspiration and we're directing it towards investigation. Now, investigation doesn't mean like, I'm going to figure this out. It's more like a willingness to be open. I always, because it works for me, hopefully it works for you. Like, again, you know, as a child, being out at dusk, you know, when it's starting to get uh, dark and some of the night animals come out, and just the listening, you know, and you hear the birds, you hear the rustling, you hear the different sounds, and the kind of stillness, the way the mind would listen and the body gets really calm, that's investigation. Not like thinking things through or penetrating. It's more like opening and letting the nature of the mind, the nature of all things, letting all that reveal itself in the space of awareness. That's investigation. That's what we do the, with the energy of inspiration. We listen. We open. We're willing to be humble, or in Zen they say the don't know mind. To let life, nature, the way it is, Dharma, to let it reveal itself, present itself, show itself. So the mind can have realized faith, right? Insight. See what it hasn't yet seen. Clarify what hasn't been, hasn't been clarified yet. Deepen one's understanding. This is the path. So this is what we can share next week in the small groups. But comments from your own practice you'd like to share or questions, Paige, you want to start us off? The back. I'm wondering if you can say more about what it means to take refuge in the Sangha or the community and how is that not just another sense experience, um, if that makes sense. It's, I mean, my experience says 
we need connection and maybe even affection and how is that how can that be how is the sangha a refuge and not a sense experience yeah well first your last point about needing affection and belonging absolutely and that's a sense experience but remember sense experience isn't bad sense experience as a sensory being we need sense experience survival depends on us navigating the world of sensuality right staying away from threat gravitating towards safe comfortable and at times affectionate spaces right because we're a social being we need that kind of social connection healthy social connections just to have mental health and physical health so it's essential but it's limited right and even if we do a good job and we're fortunate to have a lot of that deeper, more essential level of sensuality, like a good belonging, you know, good social belonging, um, healthy relationships, doesn't re- it doesn't quench the heart. We don't realize the heart's release. We don't become a wise, compassionate being just because were loved in a relatively healthy way by others. But it's a very essential support for doing, like, uh, to, s- to kind of create the safety for spiritual work, that kind of. And often you see people who really thrive as spiritual seekers are people who were really loved. And the other people who really th- thrive were people who had difficult upbringings. <laughs> and, and that's not a joke, because the pain can be a motivator to see what really resolves it. But back to your first question, Paige, about Sangha. That's really the story of Anathapindaka, because real Sangha, the way that word was originally meant, is attuning to the enlightened qualities, the enlightened expressions of people who, at least in that moment, in a moment, are coming from a really deep place. And those people, ideally, would be people who are always in that deep place, right? They're, they're close, have finished their work or close to finishing the work. But there are not that many of those people around. But there are people who in moments are not so self-centered, not so greedy, not so aversive, really coming from a wiser, kinder place, and their sangha in that moment for us. And sometimes we're the one who's sangha for ourselves and for others, right? We're in that moment, in those moments, coming from a wiser, deeper place. So we use it more generally as spiritual community, but it's really about, we're not really spiritual community when we're acting out our greed, anger, and delusion. We're not helping when we're acting, even if you're at common ground, but if you're acting out greed, anger, and delusion, you're not sangha. (laughs) You're basically causing us to vibrate with those same not-so-useful qualities of mind. Thanks, Paige. Time for one more person. If there's another comment from your practice. Yeah, Laura, please. Right over here. Um, Well, I feel really inspired by practice right now. And one thing I'm kind of like right in the middle of is, is just like feeling 
like I want to do a longer retreat, but then just like looking at the logistics of it <laughs> and like this is pretty unlikely for a lot of reasons. <laughs> and then and then but then doing what you said about like like bringing it into the present moment and kind of like well what could I be doing like every moment kind of and like how could I shape my life with the way it looks right now um you know in terms of practice but also just like every moment could be a practice and and feeling a lot of freedom in that <laughs> and like maybe a longer retreat will happen or maybe it won't but it's like not something i need to force i guess yeah and that's <clears throat> Yeah, that's a beautiful expression, Laura, and I think it's really a good place to end tonight. That that inspiration and with whatever verification and insight we've had, realization that we've had, one of the fruits of that is this sort of maturing that the fulfillment of the practice doesn't depend on having a life that's different than the life I'm having or opportunities different than the opportunities I have. In other words, I'm going to do it no matter what. Right? That's, isn't, that's kind of inspiring. You know, those of you with kids, or those of you with debt, or those of you with a job that you're not going to get out of, or those of you with you know, mental illness, or those of you with whatever one might consider challenging circumstances, being older, being unhealthy, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna turn my circumstances, like Millerepa says, into the exact teachers I need on this path. So, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly what we need to we we need that feeling that because otherwise we're in the samsara like postponement, and this really got into the Buddhist culture of this idea of postponement you know i don't think this is a suitable time for awakening you know and especially as the um, teachings and ideas of rebirth just became really prevalent i'll just keep taking rebirth collect a lot of merit until i get reborn when there's a buddha and then i'll just be like i'm at the pentecost go out and i'll say uh hope you're doing well sir and the buddha will say something really wise and I'll have stream entry and I'll be well on my way. In the Buddhist culture, the idea is if you have stream entry, you can't go back to a bad birth and within seven births, you'll be fully awake. I mean, I mean this is just part of the Buddhist culture. Um, don't be for or against that statement. It's just interesting. But it, the idea is like, okay, done. And, this is, and there's other, like Pure Land Buddhism was the same sort of thing where We'll just do this devotional practice. We will be reborn in this other realm where it will be very easy to awaken and to be done with our work. So there's all these different versions of postponement, but what we really need is this insight that's bubbling up in Laura that I'm just going to, like, I trust the intention to use my life, to use this moment. And maybe a big retreat or maybe a Buddha will show up in my life, maybe 
a really deeply realized teacher will show up in my life. But it doesn't matter because I'm going to use every moment to wake up, to do what, I, what can be done. Yeah, that, that inspires me. <laughs> so let's let go of the words, take a few breaths together to end our evening. And maybe I'll read uh, the 33 synonyms of Nibbana from the Buddha. Oh, there they are. <laughs> so he called Nibbana the further shore, truth, the immaculate, the joyful, utter peace, the wonderful, the pure, the safe refuge, the unconditioned, the destruction of lust, hate, and delusion, the uninclined, the taintless, the other shore, the subtle, the very difficult to see, the unaging, the stable, the undisintegrating, the unmanifest, the unproliferated, the peaceful, the deathless, the sublime, the auspicious, the secure, the destruction of craving, the wonderful, the amazing, the unailing state, the unafflicted, dispassion, purity, freedom, non-attachment, the island, the shelter, the refuge, the destination and the path leading to the destination. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.